This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to the fourth season finale of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're joined by a very special guest, David Mack. How's it going, David? Hi, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Now, you've written a couple episodes of Deep Space Nine, which both Max and I are extremely fond of, and you've written dozens of Star Trek novels, which is probably uh, where most of our listeners uh, know you from. Mm -hmm. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about your original novel, The Calling. Terrific. So for those people who may not be familiar with The Calling, uh, do you want to sort of give a synopsis or something? Sure. The Calling is about a man named Tom Nash. He's a blue-collar handyman from a small town in eastern Pennsylvania. And what makes Tom special is that sometimes he hears when other people pray for help. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know why he hears this person and not that person. doesn't know why he hears this prayer but not that prayer. What he does know is that if he hears your prayer, he has to find you and figure out what to do about it. And even that's not always clear to him. And then one day, after years of dealing with small-town issues, small-town problems, suddenly he hears a prayer from a little girl hundreds of miles away in New York City, and it's seven words, please, God, don't let them kill me. He doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know who they are or why they want to kill her. All he knows is he has to pack up his truck, leave his pregnant wife, drive to New York City, and before he knows it, he's caught up in a mess between corrupt cops Russian mafia, supernatural bad guys he didn't know existed, and he finds out that he's part of a war between heaven and hell he didn't know was going on. Yeah, it it really is, you know, as much a a detective story as it is a supernatural story. Exactly. I'm just wondering, like, where did the original concept come from? Did you want to do a supernatural story and then make it a detective story after you had that worked out or the other way around or... I always started out wanting to do something of a more supernatural vein. I wanted to do urban fantasy. The original concept for The Calling started out as something I scribbled in a notebook while I was working at the Sci-Fi Channel many, many years ago. And I originally, I envisioned it as a television series. And I was trying to come up with the most high-concept, simple premise for a TV show that I possibly could. And when I was talking with some of my friends in the business, uh, fellow storytellers, writers, editors, producers, and we were analyzing what were the traits that the most successful and longest running dramatic series had in common, it was that they were all about main characters or groups of characters whose job was to get involved in and help alleviate the problems of others, either detective series doctor series, lawyer series. But inevitably, it's about people who get involved in and help other folks, whether that's a Robin Hood paradigm like on Leverage or something like that. And of course, that's begun to shift recently. You have more anti-hero type shows like Breaking Bad or Sons of Anarchy, that type of thing. But in general, the ones that are highest rated, the ones that are going to show up in the top five on the Nielsen ratings and will run for 15 or 20 years tend to be shows like Law & Order, ER, St. Elsewhere, Chicago Hope, stuff like this. 
So I said, okay, I want to do a story about a guy who gets involved in people's problems, but, and I want there to be a supernatural element. I'm like, so how does he find out about their problems? How does this guy with these interesting powers and this interesting background get involved? How does he know who to help? Because I was thinking about the equalizer, and I was saying sort of like a supernatural version of the equalizer. And then one day I was walking home, and half in jest, I said to myself, oh, maybe he just hears when they pray for help. And then it was like a switch flipped in my head, and I went, of course, he hears when they pray for help. You know, it's the equalizer meets highway to heaven. It's the equalizer meets touched by an angel. And once I had that, I had the concept. You know, it's so funny that you should say that because, I mean, obviously now there's an equalizer movie out. And I was reading the book at work and my coworker was like, what is that? And I, I was describing it to him and I'm like, you know. Think of it like like if in the Equalizer, Denzel Washington could like you know hear people's prayers, and he's like, oh okay, and then to, uh, so wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's always been. You know what's kind of funny is that uh, I didn't realize it until a couple of years after the book came out, but I realized one of the subconscious inspirations for it was the Clint Eastwood movie Pale Rider. Pale mm. Rider is basically oh, the calling set in the Old West. You have the crisis at the beginning. Of course, it's also Shane, but we'll let that go for the moment. Um, you have a situation where you have the bad guys who are beleaguering the young girl and her family. The young girl, what does she do after the opening scene of the, you know, the cult of the miners being terrorized? We see and hear her praying for help. And as she's praying for help, we're seeing the spectral figure of the pale rider, Clint Eastwood's character suddenly appears as if out of a mirage riding across the snowy plain coming closer in you know these sort of dissolved you know cross fades uh you know getting eerily closer as she prays and the subtext there is that the eastwood character is almost like this avenging angel that she has summoned or maybe he's a fallen angel who walks the earth and gets into you know adventures doing right or maybe he's the spirit of somebody who was slain and has come back whatever it is i realized that that whole notion you know person in trouble prays for help avenging spirit shows up because that's what they do it wasn't until years after i wrote the calling i'm like oh yeah that's kind of pale rider <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess that's how it works isn't it yeah uh, were were there any um uh movies or or books or anything that that you were conscious of being uh sort of influential to you while you were writing this not too directly as i said the equalizer was in my mind obviously yeah and i think that i knew that there was going to be the obvious comparison to previous shows that had angelic or angelically themed protagonists acting and getting involved in people's problems but i knew that it was not going to be a show much like Touched by an Angel. It was going to be kind of different. It was going to be a little bit more like Quantum Leap, but we're not leaping life to life, but we're kind of getting involved in a different scenario. Every That, that was the premise when it was a show pitch. I wrote down like a whole season's worth of just capsule story ideas of the types of prayers that he responds to, the types of situations he might find himself in. I also came up with some ideas that would tie into the character of Aaron, the female uh, lead in the story and her sort of personal proclivity and the types of things she tends to respond to 
and the types of stories that might spin off of that and allow us to explore her character in greater detail. So that's what I that's what I had when I was thinking about it as a series. Once I sat down to write it as a novel, it started becoming its own animal and it just became its own thing. Yeah. Hmm. It definitely has uh, some structural similarities to westerns. Guy goes into town. Oh yeah. To save the day and then there are a bunch of gangs show up and get in his way. Like I yeah. said, it's Pale Rider. It's Pale yeah. Rider in modern dress. Yeah. That's interesting. I never really thought of Pale Rider as being an avenging angel. I always thought of him as a ghost. That works but too. That makes sense too. Yeah. Or a Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you one of the reasons why you picked sort of the uh the the crime fiction genre was because of the uh, sort of popularity of that on television, but were, were you a fan of that genre as well? Sure. I mean, obviously I grew up watching the same police procedurals everybody else did. At one point early in my career, when I was still trying to break in as a TV writer, I was making connections with people, for instance, who worked at Law & Order. Uh, at one point I got to, you know, take a tour, walk on the Law & Order sets. I met Sam, Sam Waterston, which was pretty cool. I wrote a Law & Order spec script with my then writing partner uh, in which we sort of did a modern day take on Hamlet and inverted parts of the Law & Order formula just for fun. Hmm. And the police procedural has always had its appeal for me. And even in other shows that are not necessarily police procedurals, a good mystery every now and then or a good, you know, kind of searching out the bad guys kind of story has always worked well, particularly in movies. Uh, and I was also thinking about the story in a more cinematic sense in that rather than thinking about it as, let's say, the pilot episode of a TV series, I was thinking of it more in terms of a big picture cinematic type of story, something very big screen, very uh, visual. So I, I think in that respect, in order to keep the engine going and maintain a sense of tension and a sense of uh, danger, I wanted the reader to explore and discover some things with the writer, uh, with, with the, uh, the main character as their point of view. So that's part of where the procedural element came in, is that it allowed me to have certain things revealed to the reader as they are revealed to the main character. And you get to experience those revelations as filtered through his perception. Yeah, and I guess in, in some ways that's sort of where it... it differs from a lot of westerns in that i don't know maybe i'm just thinking of you know like fistful of dollars or stuff or or like pale rider where it's sort of told from the town's perspective and this you know mysterious person comes in but this is very much like you know the the clint eastwood type of character is trying to figure out what's going on in the town well that's um, also going to be a primary difference of medium I mean, the, mm -hmm. the Westerns we're talking about are cinema Westerns. They're movies which, by their nature, have an external point of view. We are witnessing yeah. everything from outside the action. And even when we have certain characters are the focus of a given scene, we are still not experiencing the story subjectively through them. We are experiencing it objectively from the point of view of the camera. When you're writing a novel, very often that gets flipped around and the choice that a writer very often needs to make in a story is what point of view is going to be used to tell the story. You have the choice of, let's say, going with single point of view for the entire narrative 
or you could do different points of view, use different characters for different scenes. And then you just have to be clear with the reader about whose point of view are we in at any given moment. Uh, you also have to choose whether you're going to tell it in present tense or past tense, that sort of thing. So when I was writing the book, I wanted to go with an omniscient uh, third person uh, past tense that would have multiple point of view where we could be in the point of view of, let's say, the main character, Tom Nash. We could be in the point of view sometimes of Aaron, who works, you know, who's his partner. We could be in the point of view of one of the bad guys. We could be in the point of view of the girl who's been kidnapped, Phaedra. And so on and so on. I felt that the broader scope of point of view would allow us to get more uh, perspectives on the story and allow us to deepen the narrative. Well, that is the correct choice. <laughs> In novels. Uh, I, have, yeah. I have very serious feelings about first person and third person and present tense. Present tense has no place in novels. <laughs> I disagree. I think that it, <laughs> you know, it comes down to how you want to use it and what kind of story you're telling. For the types of stories I frequently tell, it often doesn't feel right. However, there was a book I wrote where it did feel right, and I used it for the middle half of the book. I did the middle half in first-person present tense from a That's single point of view because I thought it was the right choice for that story at that time. Okay, well, I got to read that because I have, I've, that, that sounds fascinating. That would be, that, that's <laughs> Cold Equations, book one, The Persistence of Memory. And the middle half okay. of the book is all from a particular character's point of view, and it covers a span of many years, but it's written in past tense. What's funny is it's a flashback from a story, the framing, you know, the, the, the first quarter and last quarter of the book are written in third person, multi-point of view, uh, past tense, but mm -hmm. the flashback is first person, present tense. So I like that. It also helps set apart that section of the narrative. But for instance, an, an example of an author who does great work in first person present tense is Richard Cadry with his Sandman Slim books. I don't think those books would be as gripping, uh, as deeply engrossing as they are if they weren't in that incredibly immersive first person present tense. It gives them an immediacy and an action, and it gives you an intimacy with the point of view of the main character. And the other thing he does to highlight that format is he doesn't use chapter breaks. The entire book, there are scene breaks to show breaks of, of narrative time, but it's always the same point of view. It's always first person. It's always present tense. But because there are no chapter breaks, the, his, the Sandman Slim novels take on the feeling of stream of consciousness, and it's very immersive. Well, that is, a, that is that sounds appropriate for that, that genre. Yeah. But... Go ahead. So, oh, just, um, just like I wanted to mention, like that this feels kind of like going backward and the exact opposite of the intent of this show. But like while reading this book, I was like, I want to read a Star Trek novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we, well, there are a lot more of those to choose from. Is that wrong? <laughs> Max and I are <laughs> we're very familiar with the Star Trek shows, not so much with the novels. Um, so, but it's well, there's only so many things you can be obsessed with every day. <laughs> It's one of those things where I look at the continuity that you guys have built, like post shows, you know, and it's just like, that is so cool. And yet I am so late to this party. I have no idea where to start, you know. Well, it depends but, on what you're interested in, you know. I mean, there are plenty of good jumping on points, even with the depth of the continuity as it is. I mean, if someone wanted to absorb it all and they had the time and the wherewithal, they could go back to the uh, Time Two books that were published about 10 years ago, back in the fall, uh, summer and fall of 2004. 
they could start there. That's a great place to start. You'd read those. You follow it with articles of the Federation. From there, you jump in. You read some of the Titan books. You read some of the DS9 post finale books that are you know set concurrently with that period. And yeah. then at some point, you jump forward. You read the build up <laughs> books to Destiny. Then you read Destiny, and then you follow that with the Typhon Pack books and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's it's deep. It's daunting. But if you wanted to, for instance tolerate a little bit of confusion you could jump in with destiny if you had to i don't yeah. recommend it but you could do it yeah at one point matt rushing showed me a flow chart of all the books and i'm just oh, like yeah that thing's awesome <laughs> this is the coolest thing i've ever seen and yet if you can figure that flow chart out you can build a warp core <laughs> so so with speaking of you know sort of like complex mythologies like in the calling it really does seem like you have this all really well thought out. And I'm wondering, like, at what point in the process were you like, okay, I need to get this all down so that I sort of know how all of the different pieces are going to fit together? That had to happen at the story development phase. Before I sat down to write the book, I outlined the entire narrative. And part of that process, when I was preparing the book, was understanding the cosmology behind it the deep time cosmology, like going back to the creation, like what is the mythology? What does this all mean? What is, you know, uh, the nature? Why do these powers work the way they do? What does that say about the universe in which they exist? So I had a whole cosmology and a mythology built up and it was based, you know, rather heavily on some ideas from, let's say, classical Christian mythology, but there were also some elements from old Jewish mythology, Zoroastrianism, second century Gnosticism was uh, part of the inspiration behind all that. Probably lots of Scientology, I'm guessing. No, not really. <laughs> Dark Lord Xenu had nothing to do with this. Um, well, I mean... And I didn't work in Carcosa from, you know, the true detectives uh, either. Oh, this that would have been, that. That been cool. No, no, but basically there was a lot of you know, uh, there were some stuff that was maybe drawn from concepts uh, prevalent in, let's say, Renaissance era black magic, stuff like that. And But I kind of had it all in my head. And a lot of that is not actually physically mentioned or present in the story, but it informed it. And I had to have it clear in my head what was driving all of these elements behind the scenes so that I would be consistent with myself as I was writing and I would know what my own rules were in my universe. Why do these things work the way they do? Uh, what are their powers? What can they do? What can they not do? And I had to have those rules pretty clearly laid out for myself so that I didn't write myself into a corner where I would be giving contradictory accounts of how they work. This is dangerous territory because all of the questions I have are invariably spoilers. <laughs> Well, the book's been out for, you know, six years or five, five years at this point. I think it's fair that if they, ha if they get spoiled at this point, uh, what are you going to do? Good for you, sir. <laughs> Good for you. So, so what's the, your question? My, I, I have a theory. I have a theory that Tom, in fact, has forgotten he's got. No. <laughs> right. Damn. <laughs> well, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> maybe he knows. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not it. <laughs> uh, that's that seems fine. In a lot of ways, I mean, the calling is is very different from uh, Star Trek. You know, I mean, it does deal more with mysticism than with science, and and uh, it has a much sort of 
I, I would say darker view of of the world than than Gene Roddenberry's vision. And I'm just wondering, as someone who has written a lot of Star Trek and is obviously a big fan of Star Trek, what drew you to tell this type of story? Part of it was that I wanted to draw a clear line between my original work and my work for Star Trek. While I love the stuff that I do for Star Trek and I enjoy the Star Trek universe and uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate that worldview, I wanted to go in a different direction and tell a story that maybe fits a little bit more with my jaded uh, perspective on human beings and the universe. Although there is a certain darker aspect to the story than let's say one would find in Roddenberry's version of humanity. There is also room for hope and some of the ideas that I had that were driving it, although they can seem very nihilistic on their surface, the idea was to eventually create a, uh, a series or, you know, uh, to, to create a story that could grow into something that would eventually reveal a more hopeful view of the future, or at least, uh, not necessarily be as grim as it appears on its surface. I think that that's that's an important thing that uh, that a lot of people in Star Trek analysis sort of forget that Star Trek has to be, if it is to be inspiring, it has to be resilient enough to handle occasionally getting dirty. Mm-hmm. And the idea that that in some ways you were trying to sort of uh, to compensate for that sort of uh, perhaps somewhat overly optimistic view by representing the dark side but still not losing that optimism well that's that why they call me fundamentally the, that's why they call me the angel of death you know <laughs> also you wanted to show everyone you were badass <laughs> well it, it was just one of those weird coincidences where i've been trying to tell a particular type of story at the beginning of my uh writing career especially when i was first writing for star trek i was trying to say you know they they, they always tell these stories that present us with a disaster and yet everybody comes out unscathed except for a few people who get bruised i'm like very scathed i'm like just once wouldn't you love to see one of these everything goes wrong and it's a disaster that hits the ship and it actually comes with real consequences so and i tried to pitch that originally uh to deep space nine uh with the episode that became starship down the original premise for that, I pitched to my writing partner. I looked at him when we were stuck in traffic one day, and I said, I want to sink the Defiant. And the notion was to dump it into an alien ocean and actually have the ship flooding with water and have people drowning and have the hull buckling under pressure like a submarine going down. And it was inspired very much by the fact that uh, at that time, I absolutely loved the director's cut of Das Boot. So I'd been watching this German World War II submarine movie, and I basically wanted to do Das Boot on DS9. Uh, DS9 Boot, I guess, was uh, what I was trying to do. But for, bu- but for budgetary reasons and the fact that you've got actors with continuing contracts, et cetera, et cetera, and the fact that water at that time was very expensive and hard to do safely on a television budget, they changed it. And still. Still, I mean, they had a lot of fun with it. They did some <laughs> great work. Uh, but you know, eventually they had to take away a lot of the most dramatic elements just because they're not affordable to produce. Basically, my, my reach exceeded my grasp. I wrote something really great in the first draft that all the producers shook their head at and went, are you kidding? This can't be filmed for what we have to spend. Let's try again. So that's how the episode ended up rewritten down, but I still had this story in my head. So years later, when I transitioned to writing 
prose fiction for the books and was given an opportunity to pitch some stories to the ebooks for the Starfleet Corps of Engineers line. Uh, the first one was Invincible, which I co-wrote with my friend Keith DeCandido. And that's a take on the true story of the Savo Lions, uh, which was seen by a lot of people in the movie The Ghost in the Darkness. And then the second one was basically this disaster story I'd been trying to write for years and years and years. And as it turns out, I end up, you know, in the 23rd and 24th volumes of this monthly continuing serial ebook series, I come in and I kill half the crew, uh, including the male lead and love interest of the main character. And I take the hand off the captain and basically reduce the ship almost to a broken space frame with nothing left on it. It has to be towed home by the end. And, you know, and I, I basically, you know, and I, I deliver an emotionally shattering blow. And the story is an unapologetic tragedy. It ends on a total downer of a note. And, you know, it was a, it sold really well. It got great critical notices. But after that book, ever since then, you know, here we are, you know, 12 years later, and the fans still call me the angel of death. <laughs> well, that's okay. We, we, we forgive you. Starship Down is still pretty rad, though. You got to yeah. admit. I mean, I mean it, it became. It might like have a... been toned down, but it's still awesome. I love the torpedo through the bulkhead moment. Oh, Mark, God, that's killer. Mark and Hannock. I mean, watching James Cromwell and Armin Shimmerman chew that scenery was hilarious. That's, it's amazing. And, and just, you know, all of those little character moments which are, are built up around that, that story are just amazing. I mean, you, you, you took like a, a huge disaster epic and turned it into this you know nice little character piece and also you can't kill half the crew they got to be there next week well that's what television is about it's about, <laughs> it's about creating stressful situations that reveal character yeah. it's the whole premise yeah so and then the, a the, lot of the credit for that goes to the ds9 writers who helped me you know who, who showed the way to recraft the story into that yeah. more character focused uh creation on the plus side, in the books, you don't have to like fire a bunch of people if you kill their characters. Precisely. So that's this good. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, speaking of of your your other novels and everything, I mean, I, I saw that you're you're going to be, or you have written, you you have a, a twenty four novel which is coming out in the near future next year, sometime in twenty fifteen. Okay, this story in a lot of ways <laughs> reminded me of twenty four, and I'm wondering if having written this novel helped you in writing the 24 novel? I don't know that it helped directly, but, you know, every novel that a writer writes, you learn a little bit about the process, about the craft, about yourself. Uh, so writing is like anything. The more you do it, hopefully, if you're any good, the better you get at it. Um, I mean, I've always tried to write tightly constructed narratives. I've always uh, had a sense of pacing. However, you know, the, the fact that I came from a screenwriting background definitely helped with the 24 book. And yeah. it, it also helped that I've been watching 24 since day one, minute one. So I have a sense of how does the show work? How do the cliffhangers work? How do they structure not only each individual episode? How do they structure a season? And then with a novel, which, you know, is supposed to encompass a 24-hour period, it's not going to be as in-depth with every single minute the way uh, the series would be, where they have you know close to 24 hours to do this whole thing. But I do understand, for instance, that it should mirror the structure of a season. 
And the seasons have a three-act structure, just the way that an individual episode uh, or a movie would have a three-act structure. So I was able to do that for the 24 book, where I was like, okay, act one is chapters one through six. Act two is chapters seven through 18. Chapters 19 through 24 are act three. Each chapter represents basically one hour of time. I understand that, you know, the setup is act one. The middle part of the adventure is act two. There's always got to be that midpoint reversal where things suddenly get flipped around and you find what you thought you were dealing with isn't the thing you thought you were dealing with. And then you've always got the, oh crap, everything's gone to hell moment at the end of act two. And then you've got the scramble into a whole new problem, which constitutes act three. Uh, and that's, you know, I mean, that's just basic storytelling. The thing is 24 does it really, really well. The you know I assume that the audiobook version of this will be exactly twenty four hours long. <laughs> I hope not. Precisely twenty four <laughs> hours long. When I <laughs> when I first saw that that this was happening, I I was the, it, the concept just fascinates me. You know, I, I imagine that you know st- structurally and everything, it's got to be even knowing all that. You know, and it sounds like you have a really good handle on you know what it needs to be. But even with that, it seems like it would be really hard to do. Not particularly. But, I mean, it, no? it's, okay. it's like writing any other good thriller. It's just a matter of knowing. Uh, the, the additional constraint of one chapter equals one hour of time mm-hmm. does force uh, one to step back and say, all right, how long does it take to get from this place to that place by this means of travel? Uh, yeah. So you have to ask questions like that. It requires a bit more research. It does mm-hmm. have to be a little more rigidly planned. You have to be hyper aware of where all your pieces are in your story because they're all going to be moving at cross purposes at the same time in different places. So you do have to keep track of a lot of moving parts, let's say, in a 24 book. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more rigid in terms of the structure because they do want the books to mirror that structure that people have come to expect from the series, which is perfectly reasonable. It's the whole point of the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's once you get the hang of it, I mean, especially because at this point I've written close to 30 books, so I've got a sense of how to do this and how to work out the pacing. And it's just a matter of also having, like I said, watched 24 for years and years and years. I know that every chapter has to end with a moment where somebody says something, does something or reveals something that makes you go, Oh shit, here we go. <laughs> And off, and you're off to the races for the next chapter. Yep, uh, that's cool. Uh, you gonna bleep that? No, I'm not gonna bleep that. <laughs> <laughs> Deep Space Nine writers don't get bleeped. <laughs> um, that's the rule on this show. It's in our I, contract. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I gotta tell you, some some fallen angels would have made 24 really cool. <laughs> Maybe you can work that in. Think about it. For for. For the calling, there's there's a really interesting portrayal of of New York. It's very vivid, and it's from like an outsider's perspective. And I know that you went to to NYU. Mm-hmm. I, were you from outside of the city? Did you come from a small town like like Tom? I did. I grew up in a and, I grew up in a small farm town in Western Massachusetts. I moved here when I was eighteen. And I've been here ever since. I've been here longer than I was there. I've been here twenty seven years. And all so, the locations in the book are real locations. 
you that's could, cool. You could, for instance, follow every single step described, let's say, in the running battle that takes place starting at Times Square at street level and going down through the subway systems from this platform to that platform through this transfer tunnel, et cetera. You could walk every single step and follow it through the New York City subway system and end up you know, at the ACE platform like he did. Uh, all uh, well, but real. The streets I describe in Gravesend, that's a real street. Avenue X really exists, and it really looks the way I described it. The club that I described, there actually is a club there. The only difference is I added a gate to its alleyway. Um, so, Well, they could put in a gate. <laughs> I'm sure they <laughs> yeah, probably so they have, have by now. So that it can fit into calling continuity. Yeah, That's we should we should say that our listeners don't actually do that route because that would be really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to yeah. be walking on subway tracks. That would be bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love that kind of thing. We're we're from Chicago, you know. We've grown up in the city, and and we, well, I personally love when you know books and movies do things like that. But I'm wondering. I like uh, when they play by the rules. Yeah, playing by the rules means that, that you can respect the the their usage of the location. I like that. You stuck to the actual geography. That's good. Yeah, because oh, yeah. nothing drives me crazier than seeing a story set in New York, watching somebody driving up Fifth Avenue. They take a left onto what should be 34th Street, and then the next shot has them cruising down 10th Avenue. It's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. annoying. Or they, t- they turn left somewhere in Manhattan, and the next thing you know, they're on Queens Boulevard. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Or there's like a shot of the Brooklyn Bridge and then they're in Vancouver. Precisely. Oh no, wait, that's all TV. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. So when when you came to New York as a as a college student, is was your reaction to the city the same as Tom's? Yeah, it was quite a bewildering experience to be perfectly honest. I didn't know my way around. I didn't know where anything was. Uh also adding to my confusion is the fact that NYU, most of its campus is down in Greenwich Village. Parts of it at the time were in Soho, where the streets below 14th Street in Manhattan start to crisscross. The orderly grid that defines Manhattan from 14th up to about 59th uh, totally goes haywire below, let's say, 10th Street. If you're on the west side, it goes haywire below 14th. Um, and so here I am. I'm 18. I don't know my way around. I don't know how to use the subway system. I don't know how to use the buses. I'm trying to find my way to classes and get oriented and, you know, go to school. But I'm also trying just to not get lost in the city, trying not to get mugged, trying not to fall in the subway tracks or something like that. So one of the first things I did, actually, uh, I, I needed part time work because I went to school on scholarship and college loans. I didn't really have a whole lot of money in my pocket. So I had to work part time through most of college. The first job I took in New York City, I was working as a wine and liquor delivery boy for uh, a liquor shop down on, uh, oh, what was it? Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. It's down below uh, Washington Square Park. So I was working uh, like for like a place down there, a little liquor store um, near like Bleecker Street. And my job, you know, and I would often go there and most of the time I worked at night is I would push a hand truck onto which would be loaded, you know, cardboard boxes packed with bottles of wine and liquor, and I'd be carrying cash, moving around at night by myself, and I would have to go and find people's addresses in this bizarre Soho street grid and, you know, uh, East and West Village. 
and oh take, and take it upstairs and elevators <laughs> and i'd have to get money and I, eventually at one point i remember i was i think i was cruising down broadway pushing my hand truck full of booze pocket full of cash and some stinking homeless guy sitting in a doorway goes hey buddy can you spare a dollar and i said if i could spare a dollar would i be working my ass for a living shut the fuck up get out of my way and at that point i knew you know what I may have been born in a small town, but I'm pretty sure I was always a New Yorker. I just had to get here. But I tell you, when you're 18, you learn to defend yourself real fast, especially when you're walking around with booze and cash in lower Manhattan at night, and you learn the streets very quickly. And I'll tell you, I, I was oriented. I had a sense of where things were through most of Manhattan by the end of my freshman year. <laughs> That is, um, yeah. All right. You didn't need to write the calling. Everyone knows you're a badass. (laughs) No, no. I talk a good game. I actually. (laughs) You are alive after doing that crazy job. (laughs) Believe me, I did crazier crap than that, but I can't talk about that on the radio. I'm not sure about the statute of limitations. (laughs) Okay. Off the mic, we'll get information on those murders. (laughs) Mm So, um, your, your education was, was in, uh, writing for the screen, but you've kind of made a career out of, uh, writing for the, the pay for, for prose, you know, I'm just wondering if that was a hard transition to make or if you, uh, what, what some of the, the, um, the challenges are of each and, and which you prefer now having, uh, done this for so many years. Well, I prefer the money of writing for the screen, but. Uh, part of the problem was that I ended up going to school at NYU in New York City because it was the only college that actually admitted me. I applied to like eight or ten different colleges, and I actually got rejected at all of them except NYU. So I went to NYU by default, which is crazy because I thought NYU was the one I'd never get into. Um, but my, really but my, my, my safety schools all turned me down, which baffled me. So here I was at NYU, and I had this crazy notion that I would get out of school and go to Hollywood and take Hollywood by storm and write amazing screenplays and become a director and all this happy jazz. And what actually ended up happening was I got out of college at 22. I was $43,000 in debt. I had no cash, didn't have a car, had no savings, didn't know anybody on the West Coast. Everybody I knew in the world was in New York. And... I literally could not afford to leave as much as I wanted to. I wanted to go to L.A. I thought I should go and try to break in the movie business. The problem was I couldn't afford to go. I had no line of credit, and I was 43 grand in the hole. Nobody was going to give me a loan to buy a car. Uh, I mean, I literally could not afford an airplane ticket. I couldn't have gone to L.A. if I'd wanted to, and if I had, I'd have had no place to live. I wouldn't have known anybody. I'd have had no place to stay. Couldn't have afforded a hotel room. Wouldn't have been able to get around without a car. I'd have been screwed. So I kind of got stuck in New York. And as it turns out, after four years of film school, the only actual job skills I had came from having been the editor or one of the editors on the College Humor magazine. So I at least had some skills in print media, which at that time was still somewhat useful in New York City. So I started working as a beat reporter, freelance magazine, article writer, journalist, copy editor for anybody who would take me. I was working as a feature writer for a tabloid newspaper downtown. 
uh, did crime beat stuff for a while. Uh, eventually worked, ended up working in men's entertainment magazines for a couple of years. Oh my God, you're Tom Dash. <laughs> I got fired for insubordination. Uh, <laughs> and then I went into, you know, sports publishing for a while, did uh, sports magazines, game day programs, you know, working, you know, I had clients like the Yankees and the 49ers and stuff like that. So I did that for a few years. And then I got laid off because of the baseball strike. After that, I went into, uh, I, I got a job at a food service news publication, doing desktop layout, writing headlines, doing some light copy editing, article writing, journalism. I ended up doing a column on restaurant interior design and architecture and stuff like that. And so I, I did that for about five years. And during that period of time, I trained myself and thing out of a book to do things like HTML and JavaScript and PHP and uh switched over from the print side to the website for that uh, particular publication. And because of those job skills, that enabled me to eventually make a move around 2000 over to the sci-fi channel to its website. So I ended up joining sci-fi in 2000 and I worked there for about eight years, mostly, you know, doing stuff for the website. I was the editor of sci-fi.com for about eight years. And I did things like write promotional copy and write, you know, taglines for you know the online posters for our original movies and all that kind of stuff and i finally resigned from there back in may of 2008 to go full-time as a writer but you know i wanted to go to la it just didn't happen i i got out there a few times over the years i mean i didn't stay broke thank god and I did go out there once I managed to sell a couple of episodes with the help of a friend who had connections. But I went out to L.A. and me and L.A. just didn't seem to get along. Uh, you know, I, I'm just too much of a New Yorker, I guess. I, I just don't fit out there. And uh, as much as I enjoy the money of writing for TV and I enjoy the, the brevity and the concision of screenplay format, I did find that as a writer... I love the totality of control that a prose author has over a piece of short fiction or a novel. Essentially, the difference in, let's say, screenwriting or TV writing versus, let's say, writing a novel is when you work in a collaborative medium like film or TV, the screenplay is just a blueprint of a story, and a lot of people are going to get their hands on it, some credited, some not. Particularly when you work in TV, other staff writers may be asked to do a draft on your script. The showrunner will always do a final pass, mostly uncredited, but sometimes credited. But there could be as many as six or seven or ten people who worked on or made revisions to a given teleplay who you'll never know about. They're just staff writers who get told, punch this up. No, we need another scene here. You know, act two is weak. Uh, act three is flabby. Punch it up for me. Yada, yada, and it'll just get passed around to whoever has time that day. A feature screenplay, once you sell it, somebody will rewrite it. They'll bring in another hack to rewrite it. It'll go into turnaround. It'll get pulled off a shelf in three years. Someone writes a new script inspired by your script, but not actually your <laughs> script. And by the time it actually gets produced, your name is off the damn thing anyway because you're eight drafts behind and yada, yada, yada. They needed fresh eyes. Right. <laughs> by comparison, with a novel, I found out at the proofreading stage or whatever, when you're going through galleys, you could actually, as the author, ask for errors to be put in. And although they would counsel you against it, they would do it if you asked. Because when it, writing a novel is almost like being a playwright in that you have almost 
total control over your product. So although it is a more labor-intensive form of writing, uh, it is more immersive. It requires speaking to all five senses when you write a novel as opposed to a screenplay, which can only tell you what you see and what you hear. So it's, mm-hmm. a more, it's more sensually immersive. It's uh, subjective because you're often filtering through a character's perspective. So you have to think about stories on a deeper level, not just what's going on, but through what point of view is it best to show each given moment of the story? And often the answer to that question is the character who has the most at stake in any given scene. And then on top of that, you know, you have total control over the product. And I just find that although it doesn't pay as well for the most part, writing novels is more creatively rewarding. You have more control, you get second guessed less often. And in the end, there are fewer filters and fewer people standing uh, as filters between the writer and what the writer is trying to say and the reader who is receiving it. It's very much, you know, when you read one of my books, you can hear almost my voice coming through the page. It's as if the ideas are happening here in my head and through the magic of the printed page, now my ideas are in your head. Whereas with a screenplay, I'm going to get filtered through a director, an actor who didn't like that line and doesn't think his character would actually say that, an editor who says it's a great line, but we have to cut 35 seconds for broadcast, a producer who says it's a great line, but I think it cuts off our, our possibilities for next week. You know, uh, a, a costume designer says it's a terrific line, but, you know, he's not going to be able to say it through the mask. And you said you wanted the mask, baby. You want the mask and you want the line. And they go with the mask because it's cool and it looks great on screen. And so on, <laughs> so on, and so on. There's about 5,000 people between the writer and the audience in film and TV. There's maybe five in a novel. And most of them are helpful. Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> I mean, the... The, the five I can think of off the top of my head, let's see, are my agent, very helpful. She has wonderful critiques, tries to help me make my original novels the best they can be. There's mm-hmm. your line editor, who's often very helpful. That's the person, that's the editor who usually is the one who's acquiring your book and is most directly involved mm. in editorial decisions about story. Sometimes they're called an acquiring editor, sometimes they're the line editor. Then there's the copy editor. The copy editor's job is basically to look for errors of grammar, syntax, usage, and internal consistency within the manuscript. After that, you have a proofreader. And then on top of it all, you have the publicist. So those are the the five people really who are involved in the process uh, from my point of view. I mean, then, of course, you also have the art director who's putting the, the cover on the book and the artist who you're working with sometimes as part of it. Um, but yeah, That's got to be a fun part. Oh, it is. It can. <laughs> Sometimes not. Sometimes. Yeah. I'm very cynical about a lot of writers. I tend to be very harsh, but like you do not write like somebody who started in screenwriting. Like you've got a, a novelist style. It doesn't feel forced at all. It's very natural. Like you've been doing it. Well, thank I think you. you were like. Like like you're you're really good at it. Like it's not like like oh I had to make myself fit into this other format. It's like no novels are whatever. Oh my god! Well, believe me, if you saw my early draft manuscripts from my twenties, you would say, "Wow, you've come a long way, baby." I wrote (laughs) awful, awful manuscripts. I basically had what uh, my former writing partner, a guy I used to write scripts with, his name was John Ordover. He used to be the editor of the Star Trek books back in the nineties and 
first couple of years of uh, the 21st century. And you know, he's a friend of mine, and he was also someone who told me for years, you should be writing books. You should be writing books. So I started giving it a try. It's actually how we met. Um, and my first attempts were absolutely terrible. And he diagnosed my problem in a nutshell. He says, well, he says, there's two things that often hamper starting novelists. He says, they're the ones who come out of having been trained as screenwriters, writing for film and TV. He says, they have what I call screenwriter's disease. And you can always tell a screenwriter taking their first stab at a novel. He says, you've got a thin block of uh, exposition and description. It sets up a couple of speakers. And then you've got this very sparse column of short, pithy dialogue that goes down the middle of the page with minimal attribution, flipping back and forth as the two characters trade dialogue. And then there's another block of action and description. He says, <laughs> because that's how they've learned to write. He says, because that's what a screenplay looks like. He says, mm -hmm. a novelist has to learn to integrate dialogue into the flow of action very seamlessly so that there's always a sense of the moment is fluid. The moment is happening. Action and dialogue occur together in tandem to reveal mm -hmm. the moment. He says, that's a hard thing to learn. He says, the other problem, he says, I see, is that when people come out of a journalist background, a reporting background, he says, they have reporter's disease. Reporter's <laughs> disease is someone who's done a ton of research they've learned everything there is to know about their subject and darn it they're gonna put all of it into this damn book if it kills them and you have these humongous paragraphs to tell you all this backstory and explain the significance of this thing and that thing and how this guy relates mm. to that he says that's reporter's disease he says i hate to tell you this you've got both he says because you went to film school <laughs> And then you've been working for five years as a reporter, journalist, and magazine editor. You have reporter's disease and you have screenwriter's disease. So I had a whole ton of bad habits I had to unlearn in order to become a novelist. That's part of why I resisted. He was trying to get me to write, you know, uh, you know, send a Star Trek novel pitch back in the 90s after we had done our first few sales to TV. And I resisted. I said, look. I'm not a novelist. I've, I'm trained as a screenwriter. I want to be a screenwriter. I'm going to continue trying to write movie scripts. That's what I think I'm good at. That's what I'm going to do. And we kept banging our head against that brick wall and getting nowhere, mostly because we lived on the wrong coast. And uh, then at a certain point, I just was basically, I was taking scut work to make ends meet because I was, as I told you, I was deep in debt. I managed to get out of it within about seven years out of college. So Part of the way I did it, in addition to selling stories to Deep Space Nine and Voyager, was I took tons of freelance, just grunt work around the Simon and Schuster Star Trek books office. I was the guy who was reading slush manuscripts and writing the form rejection letters. I was the guy who was asked to write up reference materials for other authors to use, where I would go through the other authors' books and I would catalog and make little mini-pedias of all of the characters' concepts and proper nouns that were unique to their books and i would write a little you know minipedia entry about it detailing you know all right who is this character what's their name what where were they established in what book what did he say they looked like what's their hair color what's their eye color what are the salient details this author will need to keep straight about them and i did this for peter david i did this for john Bornholt, did this for mike friedman and i would write up these little minipedia guides and john would send them off and then the uh, New Frontier one I did for Peter got 
uh, reprinted, I guess, when they did a hardcover compilation of the first four New Frontier books. And because I was able to pull that off when John Vornholt's manuscript showed up late and 5,000 words short for Genesis Wave book one, they said, hey, want do? Uh, can, can you in three days write 5,000 words in the format of an internal classified Starfleet memorandum about the Genesis device? And I thought about it for about a, two or three seconds. I went, yes, I can. It took you two or three seconds? Well, I had to think about the specific parameters and how long I had to do it and how long he wanted it to be. And well, that's I, way too long, bro. And, and, what it, and also, what did I have going on that weekend? And once, my, oh. and once my memory went, you're not getting laid this weekend. I went, oh, yeah, sure. I can do it. Sure. I'm not dating anybody. I can do that. So, that story went exactly how I wanted it to go. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. And, you know, met the deadline, got the 5,000 words. They liked the product. And then because that worked out, they came to me a few months later, I guess around 2000. And they said, hey, we have this book idea called the Starfleet Survival Guide. It's like the worst case scenario survival handbook, but for crap that would only happen to you in the Star Trek universe. The idea is approved. It's already been signed off on by everybody. We have an artist. All we don't have is a writer. You want to write it? And I said, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Star Trek book already approved with an art <laughs> it pays and you put my name on the cover and all i have to do is say yes uh hold on yes so i wrote that made the deadline they liked the product that was how i got invited to pitch to the ebooks now at this point i'm still telling myself i'm a screenwriter i'm not a novelist so even though i'm pitching stories to the ebooks I say, well, you know, I'm not really comfortable with the prose format. I can do a pretty detailed story outline, but, you know, maybe, you know, and I'm pitching to my buddy Keith, who is, you know, one of the co-developers, -co co-editors on the series, my buddy Keith DeCandido. I said, well, here's the idea, Keith. What if, you know, we do the outline, I'll write it up in lots of detail, and then you handle the manuscript. And he went, all right, I can do that. So that's how we did Invincible, uh, part one and part two. And it came out, and I found myself thinking, huh. Yeah, it's not the way I would have done that. But I was like, well, you know, maybe he knows what he's doing and I don't. And then what changed between that and the next project, like I already had another pitch in for what eventually became my first ebook novel, Wildfire. And what changed between those two projects was 9-11. And like many New Yorkers, I stood in the street. I stood in the middle of Sixth Avenue that day and watched the towers fall. And I came out of that experience feeling... Like I had something to say and I really wanted to say it in my own words and I didn't want to be filtered anymore. And so I was talking with Keith a couple months later at an industry event. And I said, look, uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm thinking that story I have for, you know, uh, for SAE, for Wildfire, I'm thinking, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd kind of like to write it myself. And he said, I think that's a great idea. Go for it. Whatever you need from me, just let me know. So I met with him and I met with John and I took a stab at it, and that was apparently when I discovered that whatever switch had flipped in my head that day while watching the towers fall, it turned me from being a screenwriter into a novelist, because I wrote very differently after that day. And uh, Wildfire was basically the beginning. Wow. Uh, uh, see, now we want to keep talking. <laughs> But we'll let you go That's because awesome. I know I want to know much more about that. We'll have to have you back on <laughs> again. 
<laughs> but you, you've got a number of books uh, which either just came out or are coming out in the very near future. Um, you've got Seekers, right, which came out in July. Yeah, Seeker, right? Seekers Book One came out in July, and I wrote that. I also developed the series with my friends Dayton Ward, Kevin Dillmore. They did Book Two, which came out in August. I'm working. And on that's book, a, I'm working on Book Three right now. And and that's about like a sort of TOS movie era ship. Uh, right? More end Some, of somewhere in that. Area. Well, not, not really the movie era yet. It's uh, end of TOS. Uh, the beginning okay. of Seekers runs concurrently with, let's say, the end of Star Trek original series. Uh, season three. Okay. So it picks up All like right. right after that time period. So we're not quite into the movie look and feel yet. And it's, but yeah, it's set in that era. It's a follow up to the Star Trek Vanguard series, which Dayton, Kevin, and I wrote together and which I developed with editor Marco Palmieri. And uh, so it's a sequel series, but it's very different in tone. Whereas Vanguard has been described by some people as the Battlestar Galactica reboot of Star Trek TOS. Uh, this is more lighter. It's hopeful. What we're trying to get back to is a retro style of light pulp action, light fun, story of the week. Get involved, meet strange new people on strange new worlds, figure out what the problem is, help them out, leave it better than we found it, move on. Uh, most of the time. Yeah, we, you know, most of the time, which is part of why the covers have a very retro look and feel with these big numerals that are evocative of the old James Blish anthologies from the 1970s. So, yeah. so we've gone for a very retro look and feel uh, with Seekers to sort of uh, you know, speak to the fact that we're trying to write something which is lighter, faster. It's more about fun. It's more about that optimistic Roddenberry-esque uh, take on the future. Now, by contrast, the book I have coming out in just a couple of weeks on October 28th, Section 31, Disavow. <laughs> Dark, gritty. Sounds like an adventurous romp through <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, light fun. Uh, parasols for everybody. No. Yeah. Uh, Lots of dancing girls. Yeah. Well, no death. No. The, uh, the, the long and the short of it is uh, Dr. Bashir has finally had his uh, career wrecked and pulled out from under him after the events of a recent Star Trek miniseries called The Fall. And part of it was done on purpose so that he would appear to have lost everything so that he could be recruited into and infiltrate Section 31, to begin his project of destroying it from the inside. But, of course, the first mission they're going to send him on leaves him with conflicted loyalties and maybe makes it appear this won't be quite as easy as he thought it was going to be. So that's coming out in just a couple of weeks. I spent the summer writing 24 Rogue. That's going to be out sometime next year. I don't know exactly when yet, but that'll be coming from Tor Books. And that's basically just Jack Bauer kicking some ass, taking some names, doing some good, and uh, hurting bad guys. Just everything you love. Car chases, explosions, gunfights, Jack putting people in sleeper holds, saying things like, damn it, we're running out of time! And all those classic uh, 24 lines. Clocks, <laughs> ticking bombs, I wish cutting I, the wrong wire. I, I wish it was possible to have the little boop, boop. Boop sound, you know, as you're turning pages, but I, I guess that was too expensive. They didn't want to do that. <laughs> well, maybe there could be a kid's version that has one of those little, like, noise-making machines. Well, I'm thinking, like, you know, how, how they have the greeting cards that make sounds now when you open them? Well, oh, you're yeah. totally right. Yeah, yeah. How is that? Tell them that they have to do that. <laughs> I, I, I get the feeling readers would get a little irritated after about uh. the first minute. But moving on. <laughs> uh, but I'm writing Seekers Book 3 right now, trying to get uh, that done, hopefully before Thanksgiving. And off to the publisher that should be out 
I'm thinking next June or July. I'm not exactly sure which, but I think it will be out next summer. After that, I have a couple of things going on. I've got uh, a novelette, an original novelette called Hell Road With Her, which should be out any day or any month now uh, from Silence in the Library Publishing as part of their anthology, Apollo's Daughters. It's a collection of uh, stories, short fiction, by male authors, all featuring strong female main characters. And it was conceived as a companion volume to something called Athena's Daughters, which is female authors, all writing uh, fantasy and sci-fi stories featuring strong female main characters. And it was crowdfunded through Kickstarter and really popular, got a lot of press. And I was really excited because that novelette ties into an original project that I'm working on right now and which my agent is diligently trying to find a home for. And hopefully someday I will be back on this show crowing all about that book and hopefully book series. And we'll see if that one flies. Definitely, yeah. And then uh, I've got a short story I'm going to be working on for an anthology being put together by Kevin J. Anderson. I have to add that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. He's, uh, as some people know, he's been working on the, he did the novelization of Clockwork Angels, the album by Rush. And uh, he's been doing the Clockwork Angels comic books with Neil Peart. Um, Well, he's putting together an anthology of songs, uh, excuse me, an anthology of stories inspired by Rush songs. Oh, my God. Is that how you pronounce Neil Peart? Peart? Peart. Oh, my God. I've been saying Peart my whole life. (laughs) Neil Neil Peart. So, so, uh, yeah. So it's going to be a whole anthology of short fiction, 5,000 words or less per piece, uh, inspired by Rush songs. And uh, I and many other authors who uh, Kevin knows to be, you know, uh, huge Rush fans all got the invitation to pitch in on this. So I'm looking forward to you know doing my bit for that. Got a few other awesome. got a few other notions, you know, you know, rattling around in my brain. But I'm really hoping that what I'll be spending the next several months on will be developing my original novel, which is currently looking for a home. So that's uh, that's what I'm working on. That's what I got coming out. Wow, you're awful. busy. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff. It sounds, yeah, that cool. sounds exhausting. Not, I don't have as much going on as you should. Let me tell you. <laughs> I, I have I have one last question which I have to ask. Sure. Because okay. Oh, the, I know what this question is, and I'm I am on board with this question. Okay, a, a friend of ours has a theory that 24 takes place in the mirror universe. So, of course, we went on Twitter and asked Brandon Braga whether or not that was true, and he said, yep, it does. So I'm which, just wondering, which we declared to be absolute canon. Right, so now it's canon. So I'm just wondering if, if you um, agree with that, uh, that take and if you're going to incorporate that into either your Mirror Universe books or your 24 books. Just so you, know, you, say, you have to say yes to both of these things. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> first of all, it's not canon until it appears on screen. Second, okay. Brandon doesn't own 24. That's Robert Cochran. So he's not okay. in a position to tell you what's canon and what's not anyway. But uh, but he's he's written a bunch of... I mean, he's created Enterprise and everything, so he's got to have some say in it, right? Uh, but from Enterprise a Star is Trek perspective? Let me put it this way. No? Unless it actually happened on screen that in a history of the Mirror Universe, we were shown that the adventures of Jack Bauer occurred in their canonical history, and it was confirmed on screen. It didn't happen. Not canon. So in the All prime right. universe, Jack Bauer was like running a hippie commune. <laughs> Who knows? All right. Well, <laughs> I tried. 
Well, thank you very much for joining us. We, we really do appreciate it. It was very interesting and very informative. And uh, He can yeah. handle con. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, you know, maybe next time I come back, we'll actually you know talk, talk about the calling and get into the story and the character. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the process well, we and everything we wanna, we is, is engine, much more, you know. more interesting. Yeah. All right. You know. That's fine. But, yeah. But thanks for joining us. We really do appreciate it. It was great. My pleasure, guys. Well, it's been fun talking to David Mack today about uh, his novel, The Calling. He's a great guest. Ridiculously good guest. Yes. But this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Because we're basically pitching a, a story arc. Right. Like, like we're Babylon 5, and we've got this five-year arc. Yeah. But we're going to have a three-year plus maybe the cartoons plus the movies arc. Earl Grey. Billy has 25 <laughs> self-dealing and He needs to trade with a non-Federation species using a different currency. What does Billy do? The Orb. We've already been kind of to that next step. I mean, he massages her all the time and well, he knows helps her that, out of the tub again. He knows that she has rashes on her thighs. Yeah, are, so. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, so... To the journey! You know, talk about a, a heavy-handed message. It, like, literally, on your back! It, like, literally, on your back. Like, I want you to feel the weight. You know, like, this <laughs> Like this is the kind of non-subtlety that makes it fun. Warp 5. The fact of the matter is, Bakula is playing this character just as he should. It's true that Archer seems a bit uneasy, lacking in confidence. But he's the first human captain to see these strange new worlds. The Ready Room. I haven't gotten to the point in my research where I'm I'm that caught up. I mean, I, I'm very much stuck right in season one of Next Gen and kind of have That's blinders kind of on everything else right now. Yeah, boy, tell me about it. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And we have kind of reached a milestone here, a little earlier than you might think we would have reached that milestone. This is the final episode of Star Trek uh, for which we have a writing credit given to Gene Roddenberry. Commentary, Trek stars. And he wanted it, the first part to be called Becoming Houdini and the second part to be called Being Houdini. It should have been called Houdini Begins. Yes. And Houdini rises. Yes. Melodic treks. At only 22 years of age, he conducted the Munich Symphony Orchestra using 110 pieces, a 60-piece choir, and a 30-piece children's choir. Sometimes you need the children to get them high notes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And beyond. Which one? You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find uh, the show when they search in iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Um, one way that you can uh, help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, 
You can find all of our goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We have an email from Paul. No, we don't. Yeah, from, from previously in the Alpha Quadrant. I know. Because we, we talked about Paul and his co-host Adam yes, in about our how, Outlander episode. About how they would know about the Scottish English. Um, right. Uh, long time loving relationship between them. Yes, and he said we no should no animosity. He said we should definitely do the Scotland England history. Okay, um, so we're going to do that. Um, Let's start with Highlander. In a couple weeks, we're going to do it. Get in, to Braveheart. We're going to do that on Off Topic, our other show, which you can find on CommentaryTrackStars dot com. He he also sent a second email after I said, yes, we should definitely do that. He said, I watched the first episode uh, of Outlander today, and it is hideous. The village is only 20 minutes' drive from my house. I would praise the accents and Gaelic accuracy, though. I will probably watch the rest of the first season to give an accurate appraisal. If you fancy a trip to Scotland, we could visit some of the sites. However, I would suspect, I would suspect you would prefer the Highlander tour. He's right. Fancy a trip but, to Scotland. But my wife would, I totally would fancy a trip to definitely Scotland. Definitely fancy the Outlander oh. uh, tour. So I think that would probably win. I out. would prefer the Highlander tour. I would too. And by Highlander tour, I mean going to the the four locations that are in the first Highlander movie. Yes. Yes. So thanks, Paul. We we appreciate that, and we are definitely going to have Paul on our other show to talk about Outlander. And eventually and the Scottish English uh, history. Yeah. So that's that. If you want to contact us, there's a, a bajillion ways for you to do so. You you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, and that'll send an email right to us. You can leave us a voicemail. Just look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter at comtrackstars. You or can hit us there. Or you could find Trek FM on Twitter at Trek FM. You can also find Trek FM on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM, where we have the Babel Conference. Just type in the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search engine field on uh, Facebook. and Or just go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. You can also email us personally at comtrackstars at gmail.com. Personally? Yeah, just directly to us. Okay. Yeah. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Books like The Calling by David Mack. Uh, The description here, uh, from acclaimed author David Mack comes a gripping supernatural thriller about a man who can hear other people's prayers for help, involving him in an ancient, ongoing struggle between the forces of heaven and hell. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. I actually got this book off of Audible. um, I heard that. Yeah. Not on Audible, though. I, you I, told it to me with your with your mouth. I, I, I listened to it, you know, um, while I was driving, while I was at work, and and you know, while you were is, at work, yes, slacking off. No, no, work. no. I was working. I was working oh, and listening, shit. working and listening. Yeah. I was like multitasking. It was mm-hmm. great. 
you know, and and uh, I'm I'm totally sold on Audible. I I've listened to things on Audible before, but now I'm like, this is how I'm going to get like all of my books. It's it's an easy sponsor to get behind because I mean, you know, it's books. Yeah, and look at this. You're helping out, out us. You're helping out our guest. I mean, you're you're getting to to listen to the thing that we just talked about. I mean, who? Everyone wins. Um. Not the scorned. Mm, mm, maybe not. Spoilers? Yeah. No, I don't know. Who cares? Okay. As a Trek FM <laughs> the listener... The author doesn't care. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. All right. Well, that's it for season four of Commentary Trek Stars. We will be back next week with our season five premiere where we are going to pull a wharf or a seven of nine or a something. Mr. Wharf Fire? Is that what you mean? No, we're going to like add a cast member. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, then we're, uh, I guess, seasons line up. Yeah, it's not bad. No, we're we're behind the season on the wharf thing. Okay, all right. Well, tune in next week. The writer's strike season really screwed up our pacing. Tune in next week to find out who it is. Mm Mm-hmm.